If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Add a berry blast-off for your day with the new Berry Pebbles. A berry twist on a classic breakfast. Perfect for giving those growing minds a blast of creativity. <laughs> with a new berry way to pebbles. Yabba dabba do you with berry pebbles. Head to postpebblescereal.com to learn more. Yabba dabba do and the Flintstones and all related characters and elements copyright and trademark Hanna-Barbera. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. At the height of his influence, Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo conducted human sacrifices, ripping the hearts out of his victims while they were still beating. His followers, the narco-Satanists, believed his magical rituals protected them, both from the police and rival drug dealers. The murders Adolfo committed in his search for power and money terrorized people in both Mexico and the United States in the mid to late 1980s, ending with the 1989 kidnapping and murder of American college student Mark Kilroy, leading to a fatal manhunt and global notoriety for Adolfo and his followers. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo and the Narco-Satanists, a cult known for committing some of the most gruesome murders in Mexico's history. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo founded the Narco-Satanist cult in 1984. At first, the Narco-Satanists provided spiritual services to those in Mexico City who believed in the occult. By the time of Constanzo's death and the cult's end in 1989, the Narco-Satanists had become a full-fledged drug smuggling operation in the city of Matamoros, Mexico. At the cult's peak, there were only around 20 members. In this episode, we'll be focusing on Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo. We'll examine his training in the mystical religions of Santeria and Palo Mayombe. We'll investigate how these religions shaped his outlook on the world and how he distorted them to serve his own ends. 
In part two, we'll delve into Adolfo's journey from a fortune teller serving Mexico City's elite to a murderous cult leader. Delia Aurora Gonzalez del Valle gave birth to Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo on November 1st, 1962, in Miami's Little Havana. She was 15 years old and had recently fled post-revolution Cuba. Few details of Adolfo's upbringing have been confirmed by his surviving family. What we know of Adolfo and his immediate family comes from the testimony of his followers, one of whom was a friend of his mother during his childhood. According to Adolfo's followers, Delia was a devout believer in Santeria, a mystical religion that developed in Cuba over 400 years ago. Before we get into Santeria though, we should mention that Delia herself later claimed she never had anything to do with Santeria. She's insisted that she was always a practicing Catholic and nothing else. But these claims were contradicted by the statements of Adolfo's followers and Delia's former neighbors, the Miami police gathered extensive evidence of her involvement in both Santeria and Palo Mayombe, another mystical Cuban religion associated with Adolfo and the narco-Satanists, were using their accounts of Adolfo's early life. To understand his early life, let's take a brief look at how these mystical religions came about. After slavers stole West Africans from their homeland and brought them to Cuba, slave owners did not permit them to practice their religion openly and forced them to adopt Catholicism. The enslaved West Africans and their descendants imbued Catholic saints with the characteristics and supernatural abilities of the gods they had worshipped in their homeland. They then continued to practice their native religion in secret. Over time, these West African religious practices blended with Catholicism to form a third, separate religion. This was the genesis of Santeria, which literally means the worship of saints. One big distinction between Santeria and most other Abrahamic religions is that Santeria has no absolute commandments. In Santeria, magic can be used for any reason, and spells can be beneficial or malicious. Whether they help or hurt people is up to whoever casts the spell. Today, Santeria is practiced by people of all walks of life throughout the Caribbean and Latin America. Like many Cuban refugees, Adolfo's mother brought this tradition with her to the United States. We know that Delia engaged in petty crime throughout Adolfo's life from various police reports. She was convicted of grand theft and child neglect and was arrested for shoplifting and armed assault. Police reports and testimony from her neighbors also indicate that she lived in filth and hoarded large groups of animals in her home. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Sometimes people who live in filthy homes suffer from Diogenes syndrome, which is characterized by living in squalor and lacking shame about such living conditions. Diogenes syndrome and hoarding are both often associated with other mental illnesses. Adolfo's father abandoned the family shortly after the boy's birth in 1962, and there's no evidence that Adolfo ever knew the man. Delia married at least three men over the years, but the most influential male figure in Adolfo's life was the man who taught him the ways of Paulo Mayombe. 
Palo Mayombe is another Cuban religion similar in many ways to Santeria. Like Santeria, Palo Mayombe also combines Catholicism with West African religious practices. Mayombe is the region of Africa where the religion originated, and Palo is a Spanish word meaning wooden stick or branch. Though there's no formal connection between Santeria and Palo Mayombe, there is significant overlap in beliefs and believers of both. Instead of asking the gods for help, adherents of Palo Mayombe seek to control the spirits of the deceased through spells. Like Santeria, these spells can be used for good or evil. It is often portrayed as a morbid cousin to Santeria due to its association with the dead. And it's important to note that there is nothing inherently evil about it. When Adolfo was six months old and living with his mother in Miami, Delia brought him before a palero, the equivalent of a priest in Palo Mayombe. Delia hoped the man could provide guidance in raising her son. The palero examined baby Adolfo, then proclaimed him a chosen one, and said he would go on to do great things. The Palero offered to become Adolfo's spiritual teacher, known as a padrino or godfather. Delia accepted the Palero's offer. In the first year of Adolfo's life, Delia moved with him from Miami to San Juan, Puerto Rico, where she got married. Little is known about the family's time in Puerto Rico or about Adolfo's stepfather. We do know he spent most of his childhood there. According to Delia, Adolfo was chosen as a Catholic altar boy and excelled at tennis during his childhood in San Juan. Adolfo spent his childhood surrounded by death and decay. Adolfo's followers claimed that Delia sacrificed animals regularly and taught Adolfo to sacrifice them while he was still a small child. Priests of Santeria, or Santeros, entreat the gods through sacrificial offerings. Animal sacrifices are not uncommon, but the shedding of blood is taken quite seriously. Only a situation of great importance would call for the killing of an animal. For minor problems, the offering is typically something small, like food or flowers. But it seems Delia sacrificed animals fairly often. Neighbors reportedly found decapitated chickens at their doorsteps. One neighbor even claimed to have seen Delia leave the headless corpse of a goat in the street. Incidents like this were reported to the authorities, but nothing ever came of them. Many of these animals lived in and around the house with the family before being sacrificed. Adolfo was quite used to the idea of killing animals for religious purposes at a very young age. This was a crucial aspect of Adolfo's upbringing. According to Martha Stout, a clinical psychologist who has written about sociopathy, human beings tend to draw a stark moral line at killing. Subversion of this tendency requires careful psychological conditioning. While killing animals is not comparable to killing humans, there's evidence that it can raise the perpetrator's capacity for violence toward people. Sociologist Amy Fitzgerald found that the opening of a slaughterhouse in a community can lead to a profound increase in violent crime, sometimes by as much as 130% over only five years. If Adolfo learned to sacrifice animals often and at a young age, this may have contributed to his general disregard for the lives of others. Adolfo developed an unusual trait at a young age, in contrast to his mother's messy nature. He was obsessively neat from toddlerhood. He carefully laid his clothes out every night before he went to bed and kept his room spotlessly clean. 
It's not uncommon for some children of hoarders to be overly worried about keeping things clean and orderly out of a fear of becoming hoarders themselves. But Adolfo still had to put up with Delia's mess while he lived with her through childhood. Delia and Adolfo lived in San Juan until 1972, when her husband was diagnosed with cancer. For unknown reasons, she chose to move back to Miami while he was ill, but her husband stayed in San Juan. He died in 1973. Neighbors in Miami regarded Adolfo's family with suspicion, perhaps due to the squalor surrounding their home and Delia's reputation for never answering the door, a claim corroborated by police. Delia's refusal to answer the door may have been connected to a common behavior in hoarders, known informally as doorbell dread. Some people allow their living spaces to degrade so much that they avoid letting people into their homes, aware that strangers will disapprove of their living conditions. Delia's standoffish behavior and the family's poor reputation allegedly discouraged the children who lived nearby from playing with Adolfo. Delia didn't like the people in her neighborhood any more than they liked her. She allegedly told Adolfo that those outside of Santeria and Palo Mayombe were no different from the animals they sacrificed in rituals. Once back in Miami, 10-year-old Adolfo began training in Palo Mayombe at the hands of his padrino, the palero who examined him as a baby. Little is known about this man, and the few details we have are based on the secondhand statements of Adolfo's followers. According to what Adolfo told his followers, his padrino was from Haiti. He made a good living using Palo Mayombe spells to advise and protect underworld figures in the Miami drug trade. There are two branches of Palo Mayombe, known as Christian and unbaptized Palo Mayombe. So-called Christian poleros work in concert with God and spurn evil spirits. However, unbaptized poleros want to work with evil spirits. They identify with a being they call Kadiempembe, the devourer of souls. He's a rough analog to the Western conception of the devil. Adolfo's padrino was an unbaptized palero, and he revered Kadiempembe's power. Adolfo was 11 years old when he first stood in the presence of his padrino's Nganga. Nganga is a Congo word meaning dead or supernatural force. In Palo Mayombe, the word refers to the device through which a polero interacts with the spirit world. The nganga is the source of the polero's power and is unique to Palo Mayombe. An nganga consists of a cauldron containing the carcasses of sacrificed animals, sacred herbs, insects, and an array of tree branches. These are the sticks or palos from which the religion derives its name. But the key ingredient of the nganga is human remains. The Nganga requires the skull, brain, and several other bones of the same individual to properly represent the spirit of the deceased. When the remains are properly placed in the Nganga, the spirit will carry out the orders of the Palero. Paleros believe an Nganga will obey its owner as if it were a loyal dog. The remains of violent criminals and the insane are prized by unbaptized poleros, as they believe these spirits will not hesitate to commit any act, no matter how evil or depraved. It requires no sacrifice beforehand, though a polero will reward it with the blood of a rooster after it carries out orders. Adolfo's padrino kept his nganga in a small windowless garden shed. He made Adolfo wear a blindfold while in the shed claiming his nganga could kill a person who wasn't ready to see it. 
The padrino insisted on this protocol throughout Adolfo's training and beat him when he attempted to peek out from under the blindfold. According to the testimony of his followers, 11-year-old Adolfo announced to his padrino that he would eventually have an nganga of his own. His padrino agreed and told Adolfo that he would someday have the greatest nganga of all. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com running. New Balance. Run your way. And now let's continue our story. 11-year-old Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo did not do well in school in 1974, but he allegedly excelled at witchcraft. His padrino instructed him on the spells and sacrifices that are a Polero's stock and trade, and his apprenticeship replaced a typical education. The padrino taught Adolfo the ins and outs of protecting customers from danger. Drug dealers and smugglers were particularly valuable clients for Adolfo's padrino, because they paid best. Adolfo's padrino told him that there was nothing wrong with helping drug dealers. It was no business of his if non-believers wanted to destroy themselves with drugs. Like Delia, the padrino seemingly placed no value on the lives of those who didn't subscribe to Santeria and Palo Mayombe. If this story is true, it represents another point of origin for Adolfo's disregard for human life and dismissive attitude towards those outside his cult. Psychiatrist Robert Lifton, who has written extensively on the psychology of cults and cult leaders, calls this attitude the dispensing of existence. This term refers to the conviction of a group that outsiders do not have a right to exist and that group members must reject those unwilling to join them. Adolfo's padrino didn't care if people abused drugs, but he forbade Adolfo from ever using drugs himself. He told him that if a spirit took possession of his body and found it polluted with drugs, the spirit would surely kill him. Adolfo heeded this advice for the rest of his life. In 1977, at the age of 14, Adolfo claimed he had psychic powers. He had a vision of Marilyn Monroe, in which he learned that she did not commit suicide, as many suspected. Delia was a fan of the actress and saddened by the idea that she had killed herself. Adolfo assured his mother this was not the case. Perhaps Adolfo really did believe he had this vision, or perhaps he was merely trying to please his mother. Adolfo's mother was certainly pleased by his alleged prophetic abilities and began to swear that Adolfo knew things before they happened. In 1980, when Adolfo was 17, he allegedly predicted the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. Other members of the local Santeria community dismissed Delia's boasting, 
Ernesto Pichardo, her former landlord and a prominent Miami Santero, said, You listen to Dahlia, you think Adolfo was another messiah. This aspect of Adolfo's upbringing sheds light on his personality. The sense of self-importance and entitlement so common among cult leaders had to come from somewhere. Delia's and his padrino's treatment of Adolfo as a chosen one taught him that he was better than other people. In 1981, Adolfo graduated high school with poor grades. He attended one semester at a community college, but dropped out. He also tried shoplifting, but was caught once for stealing clothes and another time for stealing a chainsaw. In early 1983, when Adolfo was 20, his padrino urged him to consider moving to Mexico City to start a business in spellcraft. Santeria and Palo Mayombe were not commonly practiced in Mexico, but spiritual healing with herbs was still in vogue. This practice was called curanderismo. Adolfo and his padrino thought the locals might be receptive to another brand of folk magic. Adolfo began regular trips to Mexico City with his mother that same year, in 1983. Delia introduced him to an acquaintance named Maria del Rocio Cuevas Guerra. Maria became an early client of Adolfo's and later provided most of the details of Adolfo's upbringing. In Mexico City, Adolfo found card readers at sidewalk cafes predicting the future for paying customers. Most of these fortune tellers used Spanish cards, a 48-card deck similar to typical playing cards. Fortune tellers in Spanish-speaking countries use them for divination the same way others use tarot cards. Adolfo found a cafe in Zona Rosa, Mexico City's red light district, and began reading cards for customers there. Adolfo's childhood apprenticeship to his padrino made Adolfo very good at performing seemingly magical spells for clients. It was while reading cards in April 1983 that Adolfo met a young business student named Martin Quintana Rodriguez. Martin was newly single after leaving a serious relationship, a fact Adolfo apparently figured out without Martin telling him. The two began a romantic relationship of their own. Santeria and Paulo Mayombe have no position on sexual identity, but in predominantly Catholic Mexico, many in the LGBT community face disapproval and discrimination. Martin's family did not approve of his relationship with Adolfo, but tolerated it for Martin's sake. Adolfo even stayed at Martin's mother's house for a part of his time in Mexico City. Martin began hanging out with Adolfo at the cafe during card readings. Adolfo introduced Martin to acquaintances as his bodyguard. The title was more than just a cover story. Martin was stocky and muscular, an intimidating presence at Adolfo's side. Around the same time this relationship began in April of 1983, word circulated that 20-year-old Adolfo was a reliable fortune teller. How he achieved this reputation is unknown. But multiple people, friends, and customers alike claimed that he could see the future. Jorge Montes and Omar Orea Ochoa found Adolfo at his card reading table just a few weeks after he met Martin. Jorge was a 50-year-old former model and a card reader himself, performing his readings in Zona Rosa's gay bars. That was where he met Omar, an 18-year-old journalism student. The two men moved in together shortly after meeting. Jorge's neighbors suspected they were in a romantic relationship, though that's unconfirmed. Omar had been obsessed with the supernatural since age 15, 
when a fortune teller told him he would one day meet a powerful man who would change his life. When Jorge told Omar rumors of an incredible new card reader in town, Omar suggested they seek him out. Jorge and Omar found Adolfo performing a reading for two American tourists. According to Omar, Adolfo noticed the two men watching him and invited them to sit down. He then read the cards for Omar. Adolfo asserted that Omar was about to fulfill a prophecy from his youth and claimed that he was the powerful man from Omar's reading years ago. Omar was immediately taken with him. Omar was likely experiencing the Barnum effect, in which subjects interpret vague personality descriptions as being unique to them. An example of the Barnum effect would be if several people are given the same description of themselves and asked how accurate it is. The description might say they want others to like them, they tend to be self-critical, they're independent thinkers, and they have unused personal potential. Most or all the subjects will usually rate such a description as very accurate, even though each person read the same description. Psychics and fortune tellers are typically good at exploiting this principle. Given the many accounts of Adolfo's clairvoyance, it seems he was particularly skilled at it. Omar's belief in the occult and attraction to Adolfo made him especially vulnerable. After the card reading, Jorge and Omar chatted with Adolfo for hours. Martin jealously insulted Omar several times before Adolfo scolded him. Martin then became civil, if not warm. Adolfo told Jorge and Omar that he was a Santero and bragged about the power of his religion. While Adolfo's initiation as a Polero is confirmed by multiple accounts, the extent of his expertise in Santeria is unclear. We don't know whether he ever took part in a formal ceremony to become a Santero, or if he merely used the religion as a cover. Santeria was more widely practiced and well-known than Paulo Mayombe, but even if Adolfo wasn't a Santero like he claimed, he was well-versed in Santero practices. When Adolfo mentioned that he planned to move to Mexico City permanently, Adolfo was handsome and Jorge said he could use connections from his own modeling career to help him. He also said that he could spread the word for Adolfo's card-reading services. In return, Adolfo offered to perform limpias, a form of ritual cleansing for the two men. He also promised to teach them about his religion and to initiate them into it if they wished. The men did not know what this entailed, and Jorge was reluctant, but Omar was enthusiastic enough that Jorge went along with it. After this meeting, Adolfo planned to spend two more weeks in Mexico City before returning to Miami. He spent most of this time with Omar. Adolfo explained to Omar the religions of Santeria and Palomayombe and the different magic he could perform with them. Adolfo threw the cowrie shells, a common technique by which Santeros forecast the future. He told Omar that the shells predicted a successful life for him, Adolfo also allegedly revealed the names of Omar's brothers and sisters without being told. Adolfo wooed Omar by escorting him around the Zona Rosa and buying him meals and gifts. He purchased a set of Spanish cards for him so he could practice his own card reading. They slept together within several days of their first meeting. When he first seduced Omar, Adolfo informed him that Martine was also his lover. 
Adolfo allegedly wanted the two men to fulfill two different stereotypical gendered roles. Martine would fill the role of being his man, while Omar would fill the role of being his woman. Omar did not like sharing Adolfo with Martine, but he agreed to it. Adolfo's emotional manipulation was already effective. Adolfo refused to perform any magic beyond simple tricks, such as throwing the cowrie shells, even though Omar begged him. He withheld affection as well. Omar found him generous, but also distant. Adolfo never seemed satisfied or happy, even though they only did what he wanted. This only increased Omar's desire to please him. Abusive relationships are characterized by patterns of controlling behavior on the part of the abuser. Adolfo's cold and distant demeanor was one way he established emotional control over Omar, and this paved the way for more overt and violent forms of abuse. Adolfo visited Mexico City multiple times in 1983, reading cards and building a reputation in the Zona Rosa. Then, late in 1983, after many years of learning from and assisting his padrino, 21-year-old Adolfo was ready for initiation into Palo Mayombe. He was to be what practitioners call Rayado and Palo, which translates to cut into Palo. The account of his initiation is based on statements from several of his followers, all of whom were initiated by Adolfo in ceremonies he said were based on his own experience. Their accounts are also consistent with scholarly descriptions of Palo Mayombe initiation rituals. Adolfo's preparation began weeks before the ceremony. He slept seven nights under a seba tree, a tree sacred to Palo Mayombe. Then he took a set of new clothes to a cemetery, buried them in a grave, and left them for three Fridays. While the clothes were buried, he took a series of purifying baths with sacred herbs. During this preparation, Adolfo made daily offerings to Pembe, Palo Mayombe's version of the devil. Adolfo selected him as his own personal guiding spirit. On the day of the ceremony, Adolfo unearthed his buried clothes from the cemetery. He put them on and went to the shed where his padrino kept the nganga. Inside the shed, the padrino blindfolded him, then asked a series of questions to confirm Adolfo had performed each ritual preparation correctly. Poleros believe that during religious rites, spirits possess a person's body. If the body isn't prepared properly, this process can become dangerous. For the final question in the ritual, the padrino asked Adolfo if he truly wanted to go through with the ceremony. He explained that once this ritual was complete, Adolfo's soul would die. There was no going back. Adolfo responded that his soul was dead and that he had no god. The padrino then brushed him with branches of a seba tree and ran a live chicken up and down his body. According to Palo Mayombe doctrine, the chicken would draw anything out of him that didn't belong to purify his body for possession by spirits. After this, the padrino slit the chicken's throat and poured the blood into the nganga. He then burned a mound of gunpowder on a knife and began carving a series of symbols into Adolfo's shoulders. This is the rayado, or cut, for which the ceremony is named. The symbols were unique to Adolfo and served as his identifying mark or signature. These marks set him apart from other poleros. Once the padrino finished marking Adolfo, he removed the blindfold. The room was lit by candles now. 
for the first time after a decade of training, Adolfo saw the illuminated Nganga, filled with blood, animal remains, and a human skull. The padrino presented him with a black bag made of cloth. Inside it was what Poleros called a quisengue, a human tibia. This macabre diploma was a scepter for the new initiate to stir the Nganga and summon the dead to work his magic. Adolfo now believed that he too could command that power. He was a Polero in his own right. Adolfo moved to Mexico City permanently in 1984 when he was 21 years old. He rented an apartment in the Zona Rosa and continued to build his card reading and fortune telling business. Jorge came through with his promise to help Adolfo in his career. He recommended Adolfo's services as a psychic and healer and even found him some modeling gigs. By the end of 1984, Omar and Martin had both moved in with Adolfo. Neither man's family approved of it. Though Omar was over 18, his sister tried to have Adolfo arrested for corrupting a minor. But Adolfo threatened to kill her when she came to their home and scared her into leaving them alone. Martine's family did not fight the relationship. They tried to remain civil, even though they disliked Adolfo. This did not stop Adolfo from once whispering to Martine's brother Alfredo that he would cut his heart out if he came between him and Martine. Adolfo grew abusive toward his two lovers after they moved in. The cold, distant nature Omar noticed upon first meeting Adolfo did not go away, and he remained difficult to please. Martin and Omar both vied for his attention, and Adolfo took advantage of this by demanding they shine his shoes, lay out his clothes for him, and act as general servants around the house. He sometimes insisted they dress in women's clothing. Martin was more headstrong than Omar and pushed back against Adolfo, but Adolfo beat him when this happened. Martin was a physically strong man, yet he accepted the beatings without retaliation. Omar hid when this happened. Occasionally, Martin became fed up enough with Adolfo's abuse that he went to stay with his brother, Alfredo. Adolfo would then drive to Alfredo's house and scream to Martin that he loved him, that he needed him back, and that he would kill himself or both of them. The cycle of abuse repeated every few months. Adolfo used physical and psychological abuse as ways of establishing control, which likely took a heavy toll on Martin and Omar. Abuse specialist Vera E. Meradian lists withholding affection, treating a partner like a servant, and making a partner do demeaning things as common tactics employed by abusers. Adolfo subjected his partners to all these things. It may seem strange that the men stayed with Adolfo when he treated them so poorly, but this is common in abusive relationships. Muradian identifies lingering feelings of affection, fear of reprisal, and financial dependence as reasons victims stay with an abusive partner. Omar testified that he did as Adolfo told him out of love and fear. And Adolfo was the principal breadwinner of the household. When he wasn't abusing them, he spent large sums of money on both Martine and Omar. He once even bought Martine a car. Abusers often display charming sides of their personalities in between bouts of abuse. This keeps victims hoping for an end to the abusive cycle, which never comes. Researcher Zlatka Rakovic Felzer writes that this honeymoon phase typically sees an abuser apologize, ask for forgiveness, and minimalize the abuse. Adolfo's version of this appears to have involved buying things for his lovers. 
Adolfo's attempted alienation of the men's family members also played into this abusive cycle. By threatening Omar's sister and Martine's brother, he was isolating the men from their families, eroding their social support network. Abusers do this to render victims more dependent on them and less likely to seek an escape from the relationship. While Adolfo's home life was dominated by his own abusive and controlling behavior, his business was doing quite well. His good looks and seemingly accurate psychic readings were a hit in the Zona Rosa, and he made good money. Jorge, Omar, and Martin assisted him with his growing clientele. Sometime in 1984, Adolfo felt the need to formalize his relationship to his three assistants. He decided to initiate them into Palo Mayombe, as his padrino had initiated him the year before. Adolfo took over a spare room in Jorge's apartment and darkened the windows and built a shrine to Santeria and Palo Mayombe. He led Omar, Martin, and Jorge in one by one. For each, he sacrificed a chicken and carved a unique series of symbols into each man's back, as his padrino had done for him. The men were riado now, cut in. Each in turn pledged to always obey Adolfo. This loyalty pledge was Adolfo's addition to the ceremony. There's no evidence his padrino ever made a demand of loyalty. By initiating so many people so quickly and making them pledge their loyalty to him, Adolfo was creating his own form of the religion centered around himself. Appointing himself as the leader of the group was yet another way he sought to control the people close to him. It was a significant step away from Palo Mayombe and toward the formation of a cult. Palo Mayombe and Santeria have priests, but they act as consultants for followers rather than as objects of worship. If any of these priests were to stop practicing the religion, it would not affect the religion or its followers as a whole. But a cult generally requires a central figure, typically a living person, for believers to coalesce around. It's clear from his followers' testimony that Adolfo's brand of Palo Mayombe depended on him. If he had left, they may have disbanded. What's more, people with knowledge of Santeria and Palomayombe traditions have cast doubt on Adolfo's ability to initiate multiple people into Palomayombe in such rapid succession. Adolfo was not considered experienced enough to initiate a large group of people less than a year after he himself was initiated. Adolfo's own training seemed to support this. Keep in mind that his padrino did not initiate him until he'd undergone over a decade of apprenticeship. But Adolfo seemed to be less interested in doing things the right way than in doing them his way. And as his control over his initiates grew, so too did his reputation in the wider world as a powerful Polero. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. Introducing Batiste's wet-activated and touch-activated dry shampoo. With breakthrough technology that absorbs oil and releases bursts of fragrance whenever you sweat or touch your hair for up to 24 hours, it's the ultimate hair care for girls on the go. Try the newest dry shampoo that's activated by you. Batiste, the future of hair care is here. Buy Batiste dry shampoo online or in store at your nearest retailer. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, 
that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And now let's continue our story. In 1984, 22-year-old Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo initiated his first three followers into his new cult. And a series of notable incidents over the course of 1985 caused more people to take notice of Adolfo and his supposed powers. The truth of the stories is debatable, but they're based on testimony from his followers and entries in the ledger Adolfo kept of his clients. Word of the first incident came from Maria del Rocio Cuevas Guerra, the friend of Adolfo's mother he met when he first visited Mexico. Maria claimed that she saw Adolfo on a rainy day for a psychic reading in the winter of 1985. Adolfo excused himself from the apartment to get some air and stepped off his third floor balcony. Maria rushed to the lobby in a panic, but found Adolfo walking into the building unharmed. Passers-by gathered in the street, around a car with the roof caved in. They claimed that a man had landed on the car, but didn't have a scratch on him. Adolfo laughed at this story whenever anyone brought it up, but it spread through the Zona Rosa and burnished his mystical reputation. Maria's insistence that Adolfo survived a potentially fatal fall unscathed is consistent with what psychiatrist Robert Lifton calls mystical manipulation, one of the hallmarks of mystical manipulation is so-called planned spontaneity, when the manipulator casts pre-arranged events as the manifestation of a higher power. It's hard to say which aspects of Maria's story are true, if any. Adolfo may have planned this event to convince her of his magical prowess, or perhaps he slipped and fell by accident and was simply lucky. Whatever Maria saw Adolfo do that day, she was somehow convinced he had performed an impossible feat. It led her to spread the word of Adolfo's otherworldly powers. Shortly after this, in mid-1985, a down-on-his-luck real estate broker named Francisco asked Adolfo for assistance. His business was failing and he didn't know where to turn. Adolfo agreed to help him and charged $4,500. After consulting the cowrie shells and performing a limpia, he told the man to buy a piece of dilapidated real estate in downtown Mexico City. Francisco sank the rest of his money into it, spending $20,000. On September 19, 1985, Mexico City was hit by an 8.1 magnitude earthquake, the worst in the city's history. Thousands died, but Francisco was able to sell his property for a quarter of a million dollars in the rebuilding effort. This is another example of mystical manipulation. The earthquake made it appear like Adolfo had really given Francisco critical, prophetic advice. At around the same time, a singer in the Zona Rosa approached Adolfo about an unsettled debt. A nightclub owner owed him money but refused to pay and had a bouncer beat the singer. The singer wanted revenge on the club owner and hoped Adolfo could help. Adolfo performed a ritual with a doll doused in chicken's blood and then told the singer to place the doll on a fresh grave. The singer followed Adolfo's instructions. Adolfo then left a dead chicken on the nightclub owner's doorstep and sent him a series of threatening letters also doused in blood. The club owner believed in the occult and took the threats seriously. 
he began drinking heavily and died of a heart attack a month later. This was a major step for Adolfo and his core followers. Until this point, Adolfo's spells consisted of cleansings and psychic readings. But now, a man was dead. As far as Omar, Jorge, and Martin were concerned, they'd all had a hand in his death. They expressed trepidation and remorse over the incident, but Adolfo assured them that what they did could not have been wrong, since the gods always seek justice. If the gods gave this man a heart attack, it was because he deserved it. This psychological manipulation worked. Adolfo was essentially introducing his followers to the concept of the dispensing of existence, in which cult members determine who has a right to exist based on their interpretation of divine whim. Adolfo was carefully constructing an environment where Omar, Martin, and Jorge could feel justified committing murder for the cult. Adolfo's reputation was growing, and the death of the nightclub owner represented an ambitious direction for his magic. Adolfo took the next logical step in the effort to create his cult of Palomayombe. He and his Poleros set about building an Nganga. The recounting of this process is based on the statements of Adolfo's followers. Omar, Jorge, Martin, and Adolfo descended on a cemetery one night in 1985. At a previously selected grave, they dug until they found the coffin. From the corpse inside, they took the skull, tibias, ribs, fingers, and toes. These parts were not randomly selected. Each corresponded to the abilities of the spirit once it was under the Polero's control. The skull and ribs housed the soul and allowed the spirit to think. The tibias and toes allowed it to walk, and the fingers allowed it to use its hands. It's likely Adolfo and his followers knew the identity of the corpse, and that it was a relatively fresh grave. As Poleros, they wanted a skull with an intact brain. They believed it made the spirit smarter. They brought the remains back to Jorge's apartment, and the ritual to determine the spirit's suitability began. After laying the remains at an altar, Adolfo reclined on the floor and was covered by a sheet. Seven mounds of gunpowder were placed on a knife, which was held over a lighted candle. Soon, Adolfo began seizing up and contorting his facial muscles into terrifying expressions. Adolfo's mimicry of Apollo Mayombe's spiritual possession is an example of mystical manipulation. His followers genuinely believed that this was a sign that the spirit was taking over Adolfo's body rather than Adolfo play-acting. Omar asked if the spirit would serve Adolfo. Speaking as the spirit, Adolfo replied, yes. The gunpowder on the knife burned, and the ritual was complete. If the alleged spirit had refused to serve them, or the mounds of gunpowder had not ignited at the same time, they would have reburied the remains and started over again with a new skull and bones. The four placed the skull and bones in a cauldron. In with the human remains went the bodies and blood of various animals, as well as insects, coins, deer antlers, railroad spikes, herbs, and tree branches. After the Nganga was prepared, Adolfo told his three followers that they were a family now. He implored the Nganga to protect the family from harm, to make them rich, and bring them new believers. It's worth noting that Adolfo's requests were purely of his own creation and not tenets of Palo Mayombe. While a Polero typically maintains a stable of clients that could be interpreted as a following, there is no missionary aspect to Palo Mayombe. 
The desire to attract new believers reflected Adolfo's wishes. Adolfo's operation continued to grow. His journals from the mid-1980s show 31 regular clients, many of whom were paying him thousands of dollars at a time. One drug trafficker paid him $40,000 over three years. Adolfo's services became so popular that he made a price list to pass around to his clientele. During 1985, around the time he made his Nganga, Adolfo met Florentino Ventura Gutierrez. Of all the clients found in Adolfo's ledger, Ventura was perhaps the most shocking. He had been the director of the Mexican Federal Judicial Police, Mexico's equivalent of the FBI. He became head of the Mexican branch of Interpol soon after that. Ventura was one of the most powerful lawmen in the country, but he was secretly very superstitious. As a top police officer during the rise of the drug cartels, he had countless enemies and sought magical protection from them. He eventually heard of and sought out Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo. Ventura paid Adolfo thousands of dollars over the next three years. Federico Ponce Rojas, the assistant attorney general of the Federal District of Mexico, suspected that Ventura also provided inside information about drug enforcement to Adolfo. However, DEA agents who worked with Ventura doubted these allegations. Adolfo entered the narcotics business at the same time he became close to Ventura. He even occasionally introduced himself as Ventura's nephew to prospective clients. And Ventura wasn't Adolfo's only connection in the police. Also, in 1985, Jorge introduced him to a narcotics officer named Salvador Vidal Garcia Alarcón. Vidal had been scarred down the middle of his face by a knife. The wound made him look different from each side of his face, as well as from the front. According to Jorge, Vidal had come to believe that his three faces were possessed by three different entities, a Sioux Indian, a Cuban drug dealer, and an African witch. Knowing the potential benefits of having a narcotics officer in his debt, Adolfo eagerly agreed to help him. He told Jorge to set up a meeting. Adolfo met with Vidal and offered to throw the cowrie shells. After making a show of studying the shells, Adolfo repeated the information Jorge had already told him about the three entities supposedly possessing Vidal. Once again, Adolfo was making use of mystical manipulation to deceive a client. Vidal did not suspect that Adolfo received this information ahead of time and took the proclamation as a miracle. Finally, he had found someone powerful enough to help him. While it may sound strange for an experienced police officer to believe such a ruse, it's not surprising that Salvador Vidal fell for it. According to psychologist Maria Konnikova, victims of cons come from all levels of educational and socioeconomic backgrounds. But there is one factor that victims often share. Many of them are experiencing major life changes or trauma when they fall for the con. People going through periods of upheaval in their lives, such as divorce, financial ruin, or illness, are motivated to believe someone who claims to have a solution to their troubles. Salvador Vidal's anguish over thinking he was possessed made him a perfect target. Adolfo, with his wealth of experience as a fortune teller, knew precisely how to exploit the man's weaknesses. Vidal became a devoted follower of Adolfo and joined Adolfo's cult soon after. In addition to being a police officer, Vidal was a large, intimidating man. 
During his initiation, Adolfo informed him that he was to be the enforcer of the group. When Adolfo ordered Vidal to do something on behalf of the cult, he must obey. Vidal accepted the terms. By asking Vidal to accept such severe conditions, Adolfo may have actually increased Vidal's commitment. Psychologist Nigel Barber writes that cults actually last longer the more they demand of their members. This does not hold true for secular groups, but followers of strict religions are more likely to stay faithful. Believers are willing to tolerate great personal sacrifice in the name of a higher purpose. In a study of 83 religious communes that existed in the 19th century, sociologists Richard Sosis and Eric Bressler found that communes with only two costly requirements, such as celibacy or the surrendering of possessions, lasted an average of less than 10 years, communes with six to eight requirements lasted for 50 years, and those with more than 11 requirements lasted for 60 years. The more they demanded of followers, the longer they lasted. By demanding so much of Vidal, Adolfo kept him devoted to the cult. And with a narcotics officer in his inner circle, Adolfo gained access to both sides of the drug war. Vidal was already corrupt and connected to many underworld figures. Through 1985, Vidal introduced Adolfo to whole families of superstitious drug smugglers. They were ideal customers. Like his padrino before him, Adolfo began advising smugglers on when to move shipments. But these weren't really predictions. With Vidal now one of Adolfo's paleros, Adolfo merely had to tell a smuggler to move a shipment, then call his follower. Vidal saw to it that the shipment was left alone. The smuggler thought he was paying Adolfo for spiritual protection, when in reality he was paying a typical bribe. This was mystical manipulation at its most blatant. Adolfo had usurped the police as the person to bribe to ensure that a shipment went through. He acquired previously unimaginable sums of money and set him and his followers on the path to wanton murder. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. Next week, we'll focus on how Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo and his followers made the transition from telling fortunes and casting spells to brutally slaughtering innocent victims. And we'll investigate how and why the cult unraveled with the disappearance of American college student Mark Kilroy. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Tuesday as we continue to follow the twisted path of Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Tom Larkin and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 